The Creatives with AI Podcast. Hello, welcome to The Creatives with AI Podcast. I'm your host, David. And on this week's show, we have Kaylee Nauman, North American Intellectual Property Attaché and Policy Advisor at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. In our conversation, we explore the complex relationship between artificial intelligence and intellectual property, focusing particularly on the influence of AI on IP laws, the ethical and legal implications of AI-generated outputs, and how various industries are navigating these issues. We also examine the potential impact of political shifts in the US and the UK on AI regulations considering the upcoming elections. It's worth saying that all views and opinions expressed by Kaylee are her own and do not reflect those of the UK government. Okay, let's get started. The Creatives with AI Podcast, the spiritual home of creatives curious about AI and its role in their future. I mean, I think that's actually a good place to start. Why don't we just, you know, start from there? Yeah. Obviously, everything that we're saying is is your opinion and not the opinion of the uh, of the UK government or or anything like that. And it's certainly not from my standpoint. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Kaylee, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm really excited. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while now, so. Apologies for the grand delay, as it were. I know you're super busy. Your your schedule is way busier than mine. Maybe if you could just give everybody a little bit of background on on who you are, what you're doing now, and kind of, you know, just, just a couple of minutes on how you got where you are, and then we can pick up from there. Yeah, definitely. I am the United Kingdom's first ever North American intellectual property attache and policy advisor. So that means that I work for the United Kingdom's intellectual property office at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. Um, it is my job to be an expert on all things U.S., Canada, and Mexico IP for the British government. So I'm not a British IP expert. I'm a North American IP expert. Okay. Which I know is sort of an interesting nuance and it confuses folks quite often. Um, my role is very much in the policy space. So I was hired to help negotiate trade agreements on behalf of the United Kingdom with the U.S., Canada, and Mexico uh, bilaterally, not all at once. So that is what I mostly do. I do a little bit of business support. Um, and then I track all policy developments in the IP space in all of North America, report back to the British government, analyze potential impacts. Um, before this, I worked for a member of Congress. So I actually come from a legislative policy background from the Hill prior to this role, which is also part of, of sort of the appeal in having me is I know, I know how the government things work most of the time. So, so yeah, so I um, came to this, like I said, from the Hill, I was actually working really in the trade and international space, a little bit in the IP space from like a telecom perspective, um, but mostly from a trade perspective. So I was a foreign policy person before I was an IP person, um, but I've been in this role for four years now. So it's been really interesting when you talk about the creative space, because when I first started, everything was copyright safe harbors and um, intermediary liability, right? So yeah. slowly more, there were certainly discussions of AI at the time, but those have, have morphed dramatically in the last four years from a policy perspective in particular. So I kind of follow... Uh, the winds, I guess you could say, right? Whatever, whatever people are talking about is suddenly what I need to be paying attention to. Right. Um, though I have a team of one, so periodically uh, something pops up that's news to me, but then I get to learn. So that's always exciting. Yeah. And and you were born in Wyoming. I was born and raised in Wyoming, which is amazing in the mountains. Love I know, it. just a beautiful place, but a very weird place. Uh, most people are like, <laughs> "You're the first person from Wyoming I have ever met," which uh, I know. 
<laughs> there are, I think, less than 500,000 people in the state. So I'm, I'm one of the, the rare Wyomingites who's made it out of the, further than Colorado on their way out of the state. I'm trying to think of what his name is. There's a there's a an influencer on YouTube, which is a uh, shout out. This this isn't actually this is an endorsement. Um, it's called Dry Creek Wrangler School. It's an old guy, and basically he just records to the camera. So he'll sit down and do sort of 15, 20 minutes, and he's just he he's an old cowboy and basically trains people on how to be how to ride horses and how to to camp and all those sorts of things. And it's amazing. One that of the best YouTube incredible. channels out there. So. One of my favorites is that uh, all of the Wyoming ranches now will like sell experiences where you can go like help wrangle the cattle, which is like the worst part of their job. So now people yeah. pay them a lot of money to come do like the hardest <laughs> part of being a cowboy. <laughs> exactly. Absolute genius. Um, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So Please he's like everyone's kind of granddad. <laughs> and he, and he, you know, he spits advice, which is, you know, like, don't go quietly and, and, and all sorts of things. So I just, I got Pull turned on to your bootstraps. Yeah. 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 Anyway, sorry. That's a bit of a little Wyoming chat. There we go. Oh, I love um, that. I love that. So I wanted to have you on, obviously, because IP, copyright, all that sort of stuff around AI. Everyone is worried about that. And particularly people who work in the creative industries, I think, because the technical industries, we've had machine learning for decades. And, you know, that's a, a, that's a very well-trodden path, I think, now. And, and the whole world runs off machine learning, actually. But these new sort of generative AI tools and the large language models have really encroached on, on the knowledge workers, Sort of, you know, we've we've had revolutions in the past that were the industrial revolution, and you know, we had the invention of fire and all this sort of stuff that really moved society along. But nothing's ever come for the smart people before, and I think that's what's really different about what's happening now. And I wanted to, not not obviously not from a legal standpoint, but just working in it and dealing with it every day and sort of seeing how this stuff happens at, at the higher levels. How is it sort of, I guess my first question is, is how are people thinking about it? And and how seriously is it being taken at, you know, at the governmental level? And then what are the, what are the general sort of thoughts around it about maybe what's the best way forward? Yeah, definitely. So this is this is an interesting one. The answer is it's being taken very seriously. And people are thinking about it from a lot of different facets. Um, in the U.S., one of the big issues, though, is that you need a lot of education, especially from members of Congress, where any kind of policy will really need to come from, right? There has certainly been a big push to have a lot of really educational work done on AI first on the Hill, which is very smart, right? Like, um, you know, the first thing that a staffer, you know, pointed out to me was, you know, we don't want a repeat of the Mark Zuckerberg hearing, wherein a bunch of senators were asking him how to use Facebook, right? They were not understanding even sort of the basic level of operability. So they're they're definitely trying to avoid doing that again. There have been, I think we're getting close to dozens of hearings on AI in general, broadly on the Hill, um, and certainly at least three or four specifically on AI and intellectual property on both the House and the Senate side. Like I said, most of those thus far have been 101s. So that's been, they've been sort of broad across across different sectors. So if there was an AI in patents one and the Senate and AI in the copyright. 
But then at the working level, while Congress makes the policy, right, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the U.S. Copyright Office administer the policy as far as AI and intellectual property is concerned. Um, and at the working level, there's been much more in-depth review of what that means. So U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has done technically three call for comments on AI and patents in particular. This was following the Davis case, um, wherein the inventor of Davis, whose name I just totally blinked, um, tried to file a patent application in the U.S. or did file a patent application in the U.S. saying that his AI model was the inventor of um I think it was like a cut for someone with um, an illness that would make them shake. The U.S. Uh, ruled that he couldn't, that that was, uh, that only a human is allowed to invent per the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Copyright Office upheld the same thing when he did the same, um, trying to register a copyright for the same thing. So that is to say that that was really the impetus, I think, for a lot of us was that particular case. Similarly, the United Kingdom ran its first um, AI and IP review similarly following that case. And, and very much from that standpoint, initially of just broadly like, what is this and why, what should we be paying attention to? Um, similarly, the UK says only a human can invent something, right? Can we just stop and can I jump in right there just quickly? And I know there's a lot of stuff and a lot of this stuff is really detailed, but one yeah. thing just jumped out to me when you were talking about that that might be valuable to to sort of separate is sort of in a, what's the difference between intellectual property and copyright because i think there's a difference between those two yeah. and well like we don't need a law class but you know what i mean like what <laughs> yeah when you say when we say ip and when we say copyright i think we mean two different things and let's maybe let's just be clear on what those are yeah so I would actually say when I say intellectual property, I'm looping in copyright. Um, right, okay. So copyright is a type of intellectual property, as are patents, trademarks. There are some other ones that I think we will skip because they're not relevant to AI. We don't need yeah. to confuse folks. So certainly if I say intellectual property, I mean basically in this instance, patents and copyright. Um, right. But I can okay. certainly try to be more specific. So it's patent and copyright that are different, Gaia. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. And I think it's really interesting, and there's a, this is probably the discussion I would imagine that's happening everywhere, which is what is a person and how does that qualify? Because the thing that I always find confusing, and maybe you can help me understand this, is companies are legal people. And so if you work for a company and you sign a contract that says you're an employee for that company, then you assign the rights to any IP that you develop for that company to that company. And that company as a person then owns the rights to whatever it is that you had. And I don't see where I where AI is any different than any other employee for a company. So if an employee at a company or someone uses a tool to create something like Microsoft, again, Microsoft doesn't have any claim over anything because somebody used Microsoft Office to, you know, or, or Microsoft Project to manage a project or whatever. So I, I guess I don't see where AI is any different in that. Is that the general feeling or is or have I totally missed the missed the point? So interestingly, from a stakeholder perspective, this has totally come up. And a, a few stakeholders have argued like at some point AI will be inventing things and we should we should treat it like a corporate entity. And yeah. that's already in U.S. law. From a government perspective, there is no question about what a human is. That isn't even part of the discussion. So the yeah. most recent U.S. Patent and Trademark Office call for comment was actually aimed at sort of defining how many steps removed a person can be from an AI, AI output before that output is just no longer protectable with intellectual property, period. 
Right. So the question isn't, you know, like, how do you protect the output? The question is, is it even protectable? So the, the argument right now is there is still a human influential enough in the process at some point that the output, if it is protectable by intellectual property protections, applies to that individual who's responsible for managing the AI. But like, at what point is it just no longer even an intellectual property output? And that call for comment wrapped up the summer, and we don't have the final report out yet, but it will result in guidance from Patent and Trademark Office on, um, I think, inclusive of whether or not to disclose if AI was involved in an invention, and if so, like what that format looks like needs to look like and, and what other information should be included. The Copyright Office has already required that for copyright applications. I feel like right. I should also say real quick for folks, knowing that you're based in the UK, in the UK, copyright is an automatic right, meaning you don't file for any protection. In the US, it technically is as well. But if you want to be able to enforce, generally speaking, you need to register your copyright with the Copyright Office. And it's not an application, it's a registration. But right. there's already been guidance issued by the Copyright Office on what, on basically just saying if you've used AI at all in your inventive process, you need to disclose that you did. And the AI parts are typically considered by the copyright office not to be protectable by copyright. There was actually a really influential case that the copyright office ruled on where it was a graphic novel that the author had written and she had used, or sorry, they had used a generative AI for the images. And the copyright office initially revoked that person's um, copyright registration saying it was generative AI and therefore not a human invention could it be protected. And then after some pushback, they said that the novel itself could be protected by copyright, but not the individual images, that those were open source. Right. In your opinion, <laughs> as a person who just works in the business, how do you think this is going to play out? Because, no, I'll just leave it there. How do you... Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a fair question. I think... We're not yet at a space where I think AI is really smart enough to do anything on its own, right? Like it's it's still yeah. very much operating on whatever has been programmed into it. Even if it's many steps removed and, you know, there's been an argument from tech folks for a while that it's it's a black box. We don't know how it's analyzing the, out, the inputs and giving you an output. And then now they've said, actually, it's not, but it's hard to track it. But it's trackable, right? And like, I think to the extent that it is trackable... That is a pretty good indication that we're not yet at a space where the the AI output is going to really be, you know, something as unique as maybe what you would consider to be coming from a human mind. So yeah. I, I, in the immediate future, and I'm sorry, my long term, I don't think that governments are going to be thinking outside of that space, right? It's going to be, is it too many steps removed for this to be protectable by an intellectual property protection you know, and at what bits of information do we need about the AI involved in this process from you to ensure that that is indeed the case, right? In the future, certainly that could become a much broader discussion. But I think in the immediate term, you know, and we, we talked about this a little bit the last time that we spoke, right? The bigger question is sort of what are the impacts of generative AI on creators versus, you know, is the IP infrastructure sort of robust enough? Because the answer that all of us have found thus far is yes, right? IP, especially like in the US and the UK, Canada, you know, Europe, the European Union, frankly, like Japan, South Korea, Singapore, our infrastructure is really robust. They can handle 
all the the impacts of AI because truly in terms of the inventive process, it's actually not anything that new, right? Same thing, just sort of, you know, different thing, the same kind of story. But in terms of just the actual impact of something that can produce so rapidly and so prolifically um, is, is the bigger concern. And to that point, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about licensing. There's been a mm. lot of discussion about um, right of publicity. And those have been um, some really interesting sort of more recent discussions um, that we've been having in this space. Uh, right so of what, is, what is right of publicity? What does that mean? Yeah, so right of publicity is um, interesting because it's a, it basically means that you as an individual have the right for your to determine whether or not your image can be used in something, particularly something that would have a commercial significance. Right. Right? I sound like such a, a policy person saying it that way. So, you know, if someone wanted to take your picture off your Instagram and use it for a marketing campaign, you would have the right to say, like, no, I didn't give you permission to use my image. Right. Interestingly, the UK, the US, we don't have this as a federal right. Yep. Um, in the U.S., something like 35 or 37 states have a right of publicity. So there's been a big discussion about whether or not that needs to be a federal right. And a draft bill has actually been shared in the Senate with stakeholders. So it hasn't been introduced, but they've drafted um, an initial bill and are sharing it with folks to see, you know, how to proceed forward on that. And if it's, it's a viable sort of solution for any kind of AI outputs that could... Mm-hmm. I guess be trying to use someone's image, right, without their consent. Yeah. And a, a big concern, a, a point where that comes from, or sort of initial point of discussion where that that led to this this discussion on right of publicity um, was that a lot of artists are saying, you know, if you use shared AI quite frequently, originally to get an output, you could even say, I want something that looks like this person or this person's artwork. A lot of models changed it so you couldn't do that anymore, but that if you knew the models well enough, you could put in enough you could use the right terminology to get that anyways. Yeah. So there was this big concern, one, about those outputs looking like something that, say, the artist who did all of the concept work for Doctor Strange would have done. And so the, what's also there is, in that discussion then, is, you know, from the same perspective, um, this artist testified in the Senate AI and Copyright hearing. You know, she also said no one ever requested my permission to use any of my art to train AI. So no licenses were issued. I have received no remuneration for these the training of this AI. But then the outputs are now commercialized. And so people are now paying for outputs from AI that shouldn't have been trained. And I, I would not have given consent for it to have been trained on my own art. Yeah. And so this, this, there's a very dynamic interplay between these two sort of considerations. So what I find interesting about this is there's been a very similar conversation in photography circles, again, for decades. Because if somebody's standing on the street and I want to take a photo of them, I can take a picture of them and I can use that picture for pretty much whatever because they're standing in public and there's no expectation of privacy or anything. It, and this always comes up. I think the the typical case that everybody cites is if you've got, you know, there's a, there's a man in a park taking pictures of kids playing on equipment and everybody gets, you know, like he must be some pervert, whatever, you have no right to take pictures of my kids. And it's like, well, you're all out in public. There's, you know, there's no expectation of privacy and it, it feels kind of like the same thing. But what you're saying is, I'd, I'd, 
again, I'm not a lawyer, so I have you know no idea. So it's interesting that the you know that the right of publicity. I guess if somebody is like if I put it in an art exhibit and I'm not making any money from it, that's one thing. But if I'm putting it in an ad for I don't know you know detergent or something, that's a whole different thing. And I'm I'm using it to make money. I guess there are two different circumstances. So certainly, and it's certainly true from. I think at first instance, at first sort of view, yes, the the photography situation certainly seems really relevant here. But in terms of right of publicity, it's finding a specific individual and trying to profit off of the image of that very specific individual versus yeah. sort of more of a, I don't even know, like, there's a word that I'm not thinking, I can't remember right now, but it's certainly yeah, more it's, of yeah. like a, a piece that you just take sort of to speak to the broader image and not that you're trying to... to right individually focus on someone the interesting thing about this draft bill in the u.s which the uk is following because like i said the uk doesn't have a right of publicity either is that it only applied to ai right. so it's it's certainly really interesting from that perspective because you know at the state level where they have a right of publicity it's broadly right it's not just an ai output but if, if the federal right would only be regarding an ai output not only would that really limit it but certainly it could age it very, very quickly. Mm. And my understanding is, is that music, the music industry wants the bill to go much further. The motion picture industry does not. Right. And that may be due to the writer's strike. I assume it is. I don't know for sure. I haven't actually spoken to the motion picture folks on why that is. Right. Yeah. But that that is certainly really notable in this space. But like I said, it's, it's a draft bill. And so even if it gets really serious pickup, it won't be until later into 2024. Right. You know, certainly uh, the election in the U.S. next year will make it difficult to get anyone to pay attention to some of these these things in a really serious way. If it's not immediate funding of the government. So. Yeah, we'll touch on elections later. I do have some thoughts about that and a, and a question about that. So I'm hoping we'll get to it. But yeah, it's yeah. So that leads. So while you were talking and, and going back, obviously, right. A, publicity was one thing that I picked up on. And then another part of that though, and it's a question I have a lot of the time, and it combines a couple of things that you've mentioned. One is it combines sort of the the black box idea with sort of artists' art being used to train AI. And my challenge to that, and this, this is what I guess you always hear, but again, it's nice to get a professional's opinion on this, is what's the difference between that and training an art student at university. Because an art student will go to university if they're studying painting or what if they're if they're doing a module on, you know, classic art or whatever, they'll they'll be told to go to a museum to find a painting and they need to reduplicate that painting or they need to 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 paint in that style. Or if you're a photographer, you'll be given a a piece of work to say, okay, you need to go do a profile picture and you need to do it in the style of Rankin. What's the difference? Because when a human does that, that now then becomes part of our knowledge set. And we use that when we then go and take black and white photos of portraits of people. What's the difference? Because we're a black box as well. So nobody knows where we got that from as a human. I, I guess the core of my question is, is, is why are we treating AI so much differently than we treat an actual human being? Because all it's doing is acting just like a human does. I knew you were going to ask me this question. I was totally prepared for this one. <laughs> so the first Thanks. thing I would say is like, certainly at face value, this seems like a really relevant question, but I, I really think it's a completely false equivalent. 
And the first thing being that, like, not to get too potentially philosophical, depending on people's religious views, right? Please but, do. like, uh, <laughs> machines are man-made. Yeah. They couldn't do anything that they do without us having programmed them to do them. And we are not, right? Like, we, we are bags of mush, I suppose, who have become sentient and are able to, to come up with their own concepts. So there's, there's that one, right? Like, as much as these seem like the same things, machines are not humans, right? And as much as someone might be trying to program to act like humans, like, one, they don't. And two, they're still not. They're still very, very limited in how they're able to operate and what information that they've been given versus a human who is exposed to all sorts of inputs at all points in time, and, like, you literally cannot identify how someone learned something because our memories, as, like, a number of cognitive studies have shown, are not actually that good. So, yeah. like, we, we start to create new narratives and we misremember things legitimately all the time. Which, I, so I'm also a yoga teacher and I like to read studies about neuroscience. Yeah. I find it fascinating. <laughs> so that's, that's where that's coming from. Yeah. One. Two. Even if a human has read a bunch of novels and then writes their own novels, if they have directly copied someone, they are held responsible. And I think the best case as an example of this is the guy who wrote The Da Vinci Code, wrote this novel. It went, it got, it was huge, right? It totally blew up. It became a movie, right? Like yep. this very famous movie star played the main actor. Yep. And then he got sued by another author whose work it turns out he had copied and he lost. Right. And he had to be held accountable for that. Or my other favorite, Snoop Dogg, in like the 90s, <laughs> right. sampled the police's, or was, yeah. it, was it Sting's I'll Be Watching You? Yeah. They didn't license it. Lost a lawsuit recently, and he now has to back pay Sting yeah. for having used his work without permission. So just because an AI robot is putting out, an AI is putting out something that might be creative doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held any more accountable than a person from another perspective, right? But the problem is, is the AI itself isn't what's culpable. It's the person who programmed it. And certainly from a creative standpoint, one of the big arguments we're hearing here, especially in the U.S., and this is going to get into another finicky piece of copyright that I'm going to try really hard to not make super technical, okay. is that a lot of AI <laughs> models were trained under exceptions to copyright law, educational exceptions to copyright law, yep. right? So as yep. an educational model, it could scan just about anything it wanted. Now a lot of those same models have pivoted and have gone public and are charging. So that would require a license. That's no longer under the exception, right? So this is, this is another big debate that's being had in terms of the licensing discussion in the U.S. in particular, in the U.K. as well, but to a little bit of a different degree because the U.S. has something called fair use. Yep. And fair use means that if you are going to use a copywritten material for education purposes, if you're only going to use like a very, very small snippet of it, a couple other, you know, a couple of other exceptions, then you don't need a license. Yep. They call this fair use. In the U.K., we have fair dealing. Like you license pretty much no matter what. There are some exceptions for education, but they operate a little differently. So there's there's a bunch of concern about that being exploited in the U.S., fair use being exploited in the U.S. to train these models to the disadvantage of artists and creators. And we talked a little bit about this before, I remember. In particular, something that comes to mind is last Christmas or so, there were two apps that came out where you could put in like 10 images and it would give you like, I don't even remember how many hundreds for like four bucks. And right. one was like a bunch of different artistic styles and one was like at a bunch of different points in history, what you might have looked like, right? Okay. And a bunch of artists 
came out and said, that looks exactly like my art on Instagram, right. where I have a public account because people need to find me so that I can have customers so that I can sell paintings that take me months to complete and I sell for a couple grand because I need to eat. Yep. And they didn't realize that in having that public facing Instagram platform, they had given Meta permission to use their page to train their AI models. Yep. Right. So there's there's a big discussion to be had here about education, certainly, but also mm. how do we make sure at the front end that if there is any regulation to be done on AI, that it is ensuring that AI is operating ethically at a whole number of standpoints, right? In in the in the intellectual property space, right? Certainly from the copyright perspective, that it's licensing when it should be licensing. You know, a lot of models, there's a question of, do we try to, do we make them go through that black box and identify things that should have been licensed and do we don't go back and do that? And of course, the argument from tech has been, that's huge. And the the argument from music has been, we can do it for every single song ever written that's on Spotify. Yeah. You can figure out how to do it for all of those images. So this, none of this has been resolved. And certainly I don't think I could tell you what I think the best practice would be, but certainly there's, there's a lot to be said for this becoming a big ten of worms if it's not sooner yeah. rather than later. Which is also interesting because Senator Schumer, the the Democratic majority leader in the Senate, has a safe AI initiative and they've been having a number of AI forums where they have discussed AI in defense and AI in other areas. They haven't gotten to IP yet. The understanding was that the outcome of that would be a big legislative package on artificial intelligence. And this has really been led by one of the New Mexico senators. But yesterday, that senator and five others introduced a piece of legislation on AI that would be a bigger package. And it's not clear on whether it was supposed to supersede any of Schubert's work or not, but it certainly seems like it was jumping the gun. Again, very unlikely to become law. This is going to be a very long-term discussion. But the the fact that it was introduced, that that came out before any of the discussions on the Hill have really like wrapped up per se, right. um, is very interesting. So I, th- I don't remember the last time, because it wasn't that long ago that we actually had dinner here yeah. in the Tunbridge Wells, but I don't remember the last time if we talked about the fact, my cynical view, that tech is getting involved in all the regulatory discussions because they want to slow the whole process down. Because by them getting involved, they can drag out meetings and they can say, oh, I can't do this maybe next week or next month or whatever. And the longer this goes with no resolution and the more confusing they can make it, the better it is for them. Because it means they can pretty much operate with impunity in the background while there's no regulation. That's that's my totally cynical view of the of the situation because just from you know my 54 years of experience in life and and working in business that that seems like a a sound business strategy from a from a purely predatory business standpoint so yeah anyway so that's my opinion on it's going to take ages and and it's going to take ages because mainly because I think the tech companies want it to take as long as possible oh i remember i was going to go back because what you were talking about is you, you know you were saying that through this discussion, obviously, you know, a lot of the Western countries feel similar about this. So you've got the UK and the US and the EU, and broadly speaking, their sort of ideas around this are the same. What's the risk of this going to a race to the bottom where you get some random country in the world that goes, we don't care about copyright. If you want to come and put your models here and you want to build your models and you want to do your servers and you want to have 
like what's to stop some country from doing that? Because it only takes one in that instance. And then literally everybody will just go put their companies there that do the AI. They'll put all their servers there. They'll do all their training there. And then it's sort of open to everybody else. Has, has anybody thought about that or? No. And certainly I understand where that thought comes from. My, my counter is no one's done that before. Like all of the big tech platforms are already regulated in a number of ways in Western countries. And most of them, I would, I was going to say play ball, but it's not true. Right. Cause you can see like, you know, yeah. anytime the EU tries to regulate us big tech, us big tech is sort of like, Oh, look at the lovely loophole you created for us. And it starts over yeah. again, but certainly they, it's not like they've left the U S or, you know, the UK or what have you and gone elsewhere already. And so I think that whatever would have to happen to get them out of these bigger countries would have to be very dramatic. And like the US government's going to do that. The British government's going to do that. The EU, eh? mm. though I am certainly not an EU yeah. expert. So I, <laughs> yeah. it's certainly a possibility, but there are already a lot of developing nations that don't really have IP protections, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of them might even be signatories to international treaties on intellectual property, but those all have um, grace periods for uh, low-income countries. So a lot of them haven't had to implement. And uh, I don't know what that timeline looks like for quite a few of them, but that is to say yeah. that that could already happen. I think part of it too is that while in principle, that seems like a good idea, infrastructurally speaking, a lot of lower income and developing nations don't have the infrastructure to support the Wi-Fi presence even that you would need in order to be able to operate a tech-based business. You know what I mean? But if that was a government strategy, they could double down on that and that could change really quickly because if they said, hey. I mean, certainly, yes. Yeah, come to us. You know, you can set up all your server farms here and, you know, we'll give you tax breaks and everything else. It's obviously, it's a theoretical sort of idea, but it feels like the tax thing. Right. Like these companies go to massive, massive effort to dodge tax and and they'll move money around all around the planet at different times. And they know exactly where they need to move the money and when they need to move it and what country they need to go to. And, you know, it's just a big shell game. And I just get the feeling that this whole AI regulation thing is going to just turn into a massive shell game where they just keep moving all the stuff around because they've got servers in these places anyway. And it's just going to be... It's like whack-a-mole, right? Like the governments are just going to keep trying to catch them and and find and find them in different places. I don't know. It's certainly a possibility. I mean, at the to- at the moment, you know, sort of back to your point about big tech trying to slow down the discussion. They're certainly participating. In it. It's probably likely to some extent they are trying to slow it, right? That is just to their benefit, right? You know, that said, regulation does change pretty often, and they adapt. They don't like it, right? But like, I just got the new yeah. iPhone, and now it has a USB C port. Like, yep. that's pretty cool. I don't have to have a million different ports in my house anymore. Yep. So change is certainly possible. I think that that is actually a lot of the concern at the working level is this could become drawn out very quickly. The biggest hurdle truly is just educating enough members of Congress to build the coalition you need to pass the bills. And part of that is, frankly, some of them are very old and these things are all very weird to them. Some of that is like, you know, you might have a member of Congress who kind of gets it, but their bigger priority is the war in Ukraine. Their bigger priority is yeah. the district, their their home district water being poisoned by chemicals, right? So 100%, yeah. um, there's also the, the having to whip the caucus or the, the members of Congress to even be interested in something. Happily, so many people are talking about AI 
that I think that this is definitely the time, right? Like members of Congress are hearing about AI from yeah. all of their constituents, right? Young and old. And so that is really garnering a lot of the interest on the Hill. Something we haven't mentioned yet is that the White House released an executive order last week or the week before on artificial intelligence. Yeah, I, I think saw it was, that in the news. Yeah, I think it was officially their second one, but they've been doing work on AI since President Biden took office pretty much. This one was particularly interesting, though, because it called on Congress to pass privacy legislation. Um, and as right. we know, the U.S. does not have online privacy legislation. They have no yep. GDPR equivalent. Um, there was some momentum last Congress, I would say, before the pandemic to really get moving on it. And the pandemic very understandably slowed things down pretty dramatically. Right. Um, but the Biden administration had not previously weighed on, weighed in really on online privacy. So the fact that that was a big statement in the executive order was of particular interest to me. Whether or not Congress galvanizes, I think, TBC, granted, now that they've actually funded the government through next year, maybe, that we'll start that discussion again <laughs> yeah. uh, as of yesterday. The other thing that was interesting is, yeah, the White House has really avoided talking about IP intellectual property sort of broadly in general yeah. um, the, over the last you know three and a half years. But they also had a provision in there on copyright, asking the Copyright Office to report back to the White House on whether or not there should be increased regulation on AI in relation to copyright. Right. Which was interesting. Certainly the Copyright Office has already been doing that review. They just uh, extended a call for comment that they issued this summer. It was originally supposed to wrap up last month, and now they're taking comments through December. Though that's really interesting because my understanding is they already have more than 10,000 comments. Right. Uh, so by okay. the time they get the rest of the comments <laughs> through next month, uh, it's going to take them a while to go through all of that. They um, should use AI to analyze it. They might, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a perfect use for AI. I and don't I actually think, know if they have an AI tool internally. I'm going to have yeah, to ask them. They will. They will but, eventually. Yeah. But this is an interesting point. And again, it gets back around to what you use AI for. And I think there are some very valid uses. If, if you have... If you do a big survey, for example, and you've got you know 250,000 responses to a survey that you need to analyze, putting all of that data into a language model and then asking it to come back and analyze the results and things like that that you get from it, that's an absolutely valid, 100% excellent use of AI because it will it can digest enormous amounts of information that people can't and would struggle to do. And, and it can go in and pull out themes and stuff like that from it. So, it, it, and that's a separate thing from creating original content. That's taking something and analyzing it and saying, here are the results. And obviously we've got machine learning that do things like run all of our transport systems and everything else. And, you know, that, that runs quietly behind the scenes that, that the whole world runs off of. And I don't think nobody has any problem with that really, because it's just a tool that helps makes things operate faster. So I, I think it's a, that's a good sort of way to do it. I mean, I know I'm, you know, a bit flippant going, they should use AI, but they absolutely should use AI. <laughs> I mean, and it, certainly there's been a lot of discussion and, you know, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, U.S. Copyright Office, the U.K. Intellectual Property Office speak about these things at the working level all the time. Um, you know, U.K. IPO is actually using AI models to an extent in, in some of these sort of back-end just administrative actions. Um, yep. U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is actually working on finalizing a model to help um, review uh, trademark applications following yep. um, a particularly iffy situation where Chinese applicants managed to get a whole bunch of fake applications filed in the U.S. 
Right. Uh, whoops. I don't actually know where the copyright office is on this, but that is to say that like at a government level, absolutely we're talking about how we can use a lot of machine learning models effectively, particularly in administrative tasks. Yeah. I think the concern is um, the human error in not training it properly and therefore missing things. And then therefore, yeah. is there a need for humans to review some of the work that's being done just to ensure that things aren't following through the cracks? And if so, to what extent and what does that look like? Um yeah. But no, you're absolutely right. It'll be interesting to see the research when it comes out, because somebody will be looking into it. But what's the rate of error of a human versus an AI? And I suspect I know what the answer to that's going to be. I imagine the Um, AI is doing a very good job. Yeah, yeah, probably. I do know to add a little bit to the mix, and, and I may have mentioned this, I think I've mentioned this before, but... I saw a presentation by the team that runs the the data team at number 10 in the UK and they have a data modeling team and they do a lot of statistical analysis and they very openly use AI to help them churn through enormous volumes of data that they have but the interesting thing about it and this goes excuse me this goes back to something that we touched on earlier excuse me is it's not a black box it actually gives a report at the end of why it chose, why it chose to to analyze the data in the way that it did, and the algorithms that it used to do the analysis, and then the variables that it found. You know, so it 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 gives them a very detailed report that they can analyze afterwards, and they can go back and a human can review it and say, did it use the right procedure to analyze this data that we would have done, etc. And in the presentation that she gave at the time, she said, we've never once had it do anything that we wouldn't do, like as an error. And she said, in fact, we've learned from it because it's actually done things that we would have never thought to do, which were brilliant and actually gave us better results. So, you know, there is that as well. So there are tools out there, even though a lot of the large language models for these huge, black, you know, they call them black boxes, but some tools are specifically designed to actually give you that so that it's not a black box and you can check sort of check their work. I think this is only a medium step though, because, and and again, this gets back to the, you know, the errors and everybody double checking everything all the time. This is just an adjustment period, but we will get to the point, I think in the next few years where we will have done all of that checking to death and we'll realize that in 99.9% of the time, the AI is going to give a more consistent, better result an answer to any question that you ask it than any human will be able to give, except for maybe the, you know, you've got a Stephen Hawking and, you know, Stephen Hawking, RIP to Stephen Hawking, but to use him as an example, it's someone at his level could certainly give a better, maybe more creative, different answer than an AI could give, but then he's better than 99.9999999% of the planet anyway. So even the people he works with couldn't give the same answer that he he could give. So I I do think there's an adjustment period and we will get there at some point that we will be able to trust the AI for a lot of tasks. And then that's really going to be interesting because then we will start to just set it off and let it work more autonomously. Is that, do you agree? Do you think that's kind of where we are at the minute? I think we're sort of stepping outside of, of what I do a little bit, but certainly it seems so, right? Like it's, it's a computer program sort of at its base, which shows you that I am not a tech person. So my apologies yeah. to everyone who's an AI expert who just cringed. But it's fine. We're just talking opinions here. It's fine. Right. At the, at the base <laughs> of it, it's ones and zeros. And like, that's that's what computers have always been great at, 
right? Yeah. Running the numbers and doing the yeah. data analysis. So that like totally, I think we're going to see it become more and more ingrained. And certainly like we already accept a small amount of human error. So like if 1% error or 0.1% exactly. error from an AI is, you know, the outcome, like, oh no, because I'm sure human error is huge. Yeah. You know, I think when we come back to the intellectual property perspective here, the concern isn't really like AI models that do sort of those administrative tasks. The concern is generative AI models, particularly commercialized private ones. Yeah. And what, and private meeting like people in the public can pay to use them, but it's a private entity, not like private like animals. Right. And those are certainly the models where I think we're, we're, I mean, we're already having big discussions and those are the places where it can get very tricky very quickly if we don't sort of have guardrails more immediately, or at least from a policy perspective. That raises an interesting question. What if somebody built an AI and they said, look, we're going to train it on everything, but it's totally free and everybody can use it freely for anything that they want. There is, there is no economic benefits to yeah. the company that develops it. I mean, certainly you get a lot of those sort of similar arguments from open source folks. Yeah. The problem is, is that training it on things that should be licensed is still going to be a problem, right? If they're somehow able to only source, scan through, license, you know, open source things and then make it in the output open source, like, okay. But it, it's never going to be quite that straightforward. You know, some mm -hmm. companies to avoid this have, you know, like the Adobe machine learning model yep. has only used licensed Adobe images. Yeah. Wait, like. That's all it has absolutely stated. That is the only thing that they have used. And then Adobe even says for paying users, if you do end up in a situation where you are now being sued for a copyright violation, yep. we will reimburse your costs. Yeah, I saw that. Like yeah. that's how much confidence they have in that model. And a few other places yeah. have now followed suit. I think ChatGPT has now followed suit, which I thought was bold. Yeah, that's I don't know if I feel as confident about their inputs as I do about, say, Adobe's. Yeah. Yeah. But there, the other side of this, too, is there's a number of pending AI cases in the U.S. right now um, that I'm tracking in particular, at least like seven or eight. And the outcomes of these cases will also be very indicative of how we move forward on regulating generative AI in particular and what um, precedents are to be set. Um, yeah. The U.S. obviously being home to a lot of these platforms, I think we'll start, we'll end up sort of ad hoc regulating a lot of other countries, whether they like it or not. Certainly, I think that's why you see like the EU trying to get really ahead of this curve. Um, certainly, the UK is interested in doing so as well, though obviously um, isn't quite as far ahead say, as, as the EU is. No. And that's, that's actually a really great segue because into, I know I, I'm not asking for a political opinion, but we are going to talk about politics for a second because obviously in the US has elections next year. The UK has a forced elections next year. So we're at the end of the of this period where, you know, we have to have an election in 2024. I think the latest that, that the election could possibly happen is like next December. But it does have to happen. You know, the, the sort of the whispers are that it'll be in May, but we'll see. Nobody knows for sure. But it's also expected that there will be a change of party, certainly here. I don't know what the feeling is in the U.S. I, I, I haven't been tracking it too much and, and not actually living there and being able to talk to people on the ground. I don't have any real feel for what it might be like, but I certainly know in the U.K. that if there isn't a change to the Labour Party, that's going to be a miracle. They're like 30 points ahead in the in the polls at the minute. So I think 
that's going to be a philosophical change. So regardless of the the party that's there, what I wonder is, is, you know, we're going to have a whole new group of people. And the current government's view has been that they want the UK to lead and and as really working hard to try and position the UK as the leader on AI regulation and everything else. They obviously had the summit a couple of weeks ago here where they were trying, you know, so that that's been a something of the current government to do. But there's no guarantee that the next government that comes in next time is going to care. They may have a whole different platform and they may go, yeah, AI is important and we'll be happy to participate, but we don't really care because we've got bigger fish to fry. And that same thing could happen in the US. And I'm curious to to know what you think about, again, it's not like which party and who you, who you want to vote for. It's more about what do you think the change is going to be and how do you think that's going to affect the whole landscape? Yeah, that's, I love this like crystal ball question. Um, so certainly, you know, easier for me to speak to the U.S., certainly. I think sure. My viewpoint here in D.C. is that the election is still very neck and neck, right? So obviously, like, no actual election has started. Yeah. <laughs> um, Trump has not chosen to participate in any of the Republican debates. Yeah. But I think the understanding is it will be Trump and it will be Biden. And it's going to be pretty close. Yeah. What's the feeling there? Because over here, the feeling seems to be, what I've seen reported is, is that even though he doesn't participate in any of this stuff, he's still the leading candidate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, for the podcast listeners, yes, yeah. that is 100% yeah. the case. He just has such a cult of personality, right? Like people who support Trump, like want to follow Trump, right? Unless he manages to get a felony before November, it, it very much looks like he's the candidate. Right. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how that goes. So from a congressional standpoint, I don't think that the dynamic on AI will change pretty much at all. Right. right. Like there's already some party lines here, very minimally. You know, I think it's just the extent of regulation. I think Democrats typically want more, right? Republicans typically want less. Republicans tend to be a bit more like let industry do what it wants, and Democrats tend to be a bit more concerned about um, you know, online safety, as it were. So we'll see those debates continue. If they do privacy first, I think that will actually address a lot of those concerns. So we'll see how that goes. Right. From a White House standpoint, does Donald Trump know what AI is? Right? Do Does he have staff who are briefing him on it? I, I sort of presume no. Would he listen if he did have staff briefing right. him on I, it? I sort of imagine, personal <laughs> opinion, that his idea of AI is very much like the robots in the movies that are basically humans, because you know what I mean? So yeah. whether or not that is something his White House, if he came back, picked up on right away, honestly, very hard to tell. Certainly, like yeah. Congress will keep pushing. Needless to say, like we haven't seen platforms from... Trump or really Biden yet on like what yeah. they would foresee this like next four years looking like. But when we get there, it'll be interesting. Do you think there'll be a swing in the in the lower in the houses as well? Like it's different. I, I don't know how many people in the UK know how the American system works and vice versa. But what'll happen here sort of is that the party will win and, and the and the party that has the most seats in parliament will then put somebody up who'll be the prime minister. So it kind of goes together. Over here, whereas in the U.S., it, funnily enough, is works completely differently, and that's on purpose. So, it it could you know 
obviously the way it works in the US, you could end up with a president of one party in the Senate, you know, you could have a Republican in and, a, and different parties split up. Yeah. Do you see there being swings in the houses as well? Or do you think this might just be the president, but it's probably going to be the same? Or is it literally like it's just totally open and no one has an idea of what's going to happen? I haven't actually heard from anyone on what they think will happen. So right. I, my opinion that I'm about to express might be totally wrong. But yeah, for, for the folks on the, might be, who might be listening or watching who are not super fluent with the U.S. system, right? Every single member of the House of Representatives will be up for election. All of them. Right. And then I think about a third of the senators. Interestingly, right. um, Senator Joe Manchin, who has been a big moderate Democrat, some people would argue actual Republican presence in the Democratic Party, uh, has said he's going to retire. So that is certainly really notable, uh, though normally I, that's a West Virginia seat. And normally um, people would say that a Republican would be taking it over, but it looks like there's yeah. a strong Democratic presence. So that'll be interesting, interesting to watch. Obviously, Senator Dianne Feinstein passed away. The governor of California has appointed someone to see out the rest of her term. But whenever that term is up, we'll see that election. Um, that said, that was a California seat, and it will very, very likely stay Democrat. Um, yeah. So that will dramatically change those party dynamics. So that is to say, in the Senate, I think we're not likely to see a dramatic change. I think it's going to stay pretty similar. We might end up in a situation again where it's split 50-50, meaning the vice president is the tie-breaking vote. Um, right. Certainly, that's why we haven't seen more from Vice President Harris uh, sort of generally during uh, this presidency, because she had to be in, the, in D.C. in case of a tie-break vote. Right. In the House... Who knows? Who knows? Um, yeah. And, you know, in part I say that because we had the midterm elections not too long ago and everyone was saying the House was going to flip dramatically and be very much majority led by the Republicans. And it didn't. I think the Republicans only have a majority by like five or six seats, if I remember correctly. Right. OK. So I, and it's interesting, too, because with the Senate being for almost evenly split, like the Democrats only have one seat over the Republicans right now. And with this right. House sort of being similar, if that continues, that's also a really interesting trend because that requires more collaboration and cooperation. And frankly, we're not seeing any desire to do that. Right. But the, the other big wild card here is Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, does not appear to be doing very well. I have no yeah. insider knowledge of this, right? Yeah. They're, they're keeping this a very close hold. Just what uh, you see on the news. What, what we've seen on the news is that he's appeared to have a couple of uh, seizures yeah. during news conferences, like press conferences. Yeah. But he very, very closely holds the Republicans together across, like Cameron Lee, across both chambers. Right, okay. And there's really not a person who could step into a power vacuum if he retires or passes. Right. Okay. And Interesting. That, very much like same Speaker of the House situation recently, right? Where someone that none of us were familiar with is now in the seat. I think we would have a very similar sort of, okay, who's taking over? And when they do take over, what is that dynamic? And will yeah. they be able to whip their caucus as effectively as McCarthy does, or sorry, as, uh, as the Senator does, as, you know, Speaker Pelosi did in the past, right? So, those are those are some other sort of outlying things here that are going to make a huge difference in the way that the yeah. Senate would operate. And we just don't know. Yeah. I mean, I know that's a little bit more politics than maybe people were expecting, but <laughs> I, no, but I do. I, I think it's hugely important. And I think it on this discussion of, 
you know, how we move forward with AI and, and the regulations and the guardrails and all that sort of stuff, you know, the, the parties that are in, I think, make a huge difference on the approach and how that happens. And I think if we're going to see a change in potentially both countries, you know, that are going to have major influence in, in what happens moving forward and, and around AI, I think it's a, it's potentially a huge concern because, excuse me, it's highly likely that, you know, labor is going to come in in the UK and they're going to say, look, we've got to focus on cost of living. We've got to focus on, you know, getting the NHS. You know, there have been loads of strikes. We've had, we've had, you know, strike action for, for the last 18 months, two years. You know, we've had the, the train drivers have been striking. There's been all sorts of the NHS, everything. And there's a lot of civil unrest. We've, you know, people don't have any money at the minute. The, the 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 cost of living is skyrocketing, and they may just say, "Look, AI is a distraction for that at the minute. We've got to really get our, you know, we've got to get our our, our ducks in a row, and and we've really got to figure this out." And it could just get put on the back burner, which may not be good for anyone, or you know, where it means the EU is actually going to end up taking the lead on it. And, you know, while the U.S. is distracted, if Trump gets in, the media is going to completely ignore AI. No one's ever going to talk about AI again. All it's going to be is it's going to be wall-to-wall coverage of Trump, you know, and and no one's going to get a look in for, for months on it, on anything. And and I think that's my that's my concern, and that's why I think it's important. So, yeah, thanks, for the, you know, thanks, thanks for the viewpoint. Again, I know it's, you know, this is all just our opinions, and, and we're just talking about it. But yeah, I, th- yeah. I think it's important. No, it's definitely going to make a huge difference. Totally right. Yeah, 100%. So I have a few questions I always ask at the end, but before we do that, is there anything that you think that we should have talked about that we didn't talk about? Like something that you think is particularly important that maybe something that's important that you want to highlight for everybody just to say, you know, this is something you need to think about or this is important or whatever? Honestly, no, I think we really covered sort of the gambit of it. Um, I'm sure we'll get in the comments, we'll get like 15 million questions going, why didn't you ask her this? Why didn't you ask her that? So (laughs) if we have to do a follow-up sometime, we can do a follow-up. Exactly. Yeah. Put in the comments if anybody, if anybody has any questions, I'm sure I forgot to ask you loads of stuff. I can make sure to, I I have forgotten the name of several things. And so I will make sure to like send you the links to those so that you can share them. Brilliant. And I'm going to put links to more information on things like the right of publicity and also the I'll put a link to the second Weiss House, the most recent executive order that came out in case people want to look at that. So anything that we think I'll I'll put I was I was just saying to Kaylee earlier that I have a whole new podcast hosting platform that I'm using, which actually enables me to do really, really nice show notes and stuff now that I didn't have the capacity to do before. So doing things like dropping these links in will be much easier to do. So um, yeah. I will I will put all that in. So, okay. Well, if you don't think we really missed anything major, then that's that's really good, I guess. Yeah. No, I think we covered everything that I can think of. So go cool. us. So I'll just got a couple questions that I ask everybody. Number one, in your mind, is AI male or female? I, don't th- I think of it as very asexual. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And- if you have, not if, but when you have your AI assistant, because you will have one someday, when you have your AI assistant, what will you name it? It'll always be based on a cartoon. So, for example, okay. I have a robot vacuum named Frobo, which is a frog robot from a Disney cartoon. Nice. <laughs> so it'll certainly be something similar, but on the spot, I cannot think of anything. Okay. I'll reflect. Okay, cool. 
Send it to me. I'll put it in the show notes. Maybe if you can think of something. What's the name of the like AI in Shira? Oh, I don't know. Maybe that. I'll have to look up what it was. Yeah, I was going to say one of like we're furiously typing now, trying to. Look it up. <laughs> um, I'm on like my table. It's a little shaky, so I'm trying to not type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. I just find it interesting as well, you know, because we are going to get to that point, and and I've said this many times, but I can't wait to have a an AI assistant because it will probably be much better at remembering things than I am, and uh, and it will probably be a lot better at getting stuff done. So if I have a you're going to laugh that though, like, my partner and I don't have an Alexa or an equivalent. Like we, you know, like none of these things. I sometimes ask Siri to add things to my grocery list. Yeah. So I think personally, I assume that if 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 and when we get to that point, my partner and I will be late adopters ourselves. Right. It'll get to that point where we sort of have no choice. Well, I have, I got early access again because of the podcast. Somebody reached out and I got early access to an AI and it runs on Signal. So basically you just message it back and forth on Signal and you can ask it to do things like, can you find the lowest price for this particular thing? And it'll go out and find it. And can you book me a hotel? And stuff like that. So it'll like, you can ask it about holidays and like, I want to go to New Zealand. Can you find the best hotel and, you know, Christchurch in February and it will, it will go away and do the research for you. So, but it's very, it's very commercially minded. So it, it, it's more about doing those sorts of things, but that's kind of what the AI assistance I think is going to be like. It's not going to be there to be your friend. It's going to be there to make a dinner reservation for you or to remind you that your anniversary is coming up in two weeks. If it, if it knows that. So yeah, I can't wait. I think it's going to be fun. It would be nice to be like, send that email I keep avoiding sending. Go. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just don't tell me what's in it. Just send it. <laughs> cool. And and the last thing is I, I usually just like to get people's opinion, and this is kind of based on the sci-fi. So, you know, we've had loads of different sci-fi films in the past. We've got everything from, you know, Star Trek to, you know, I guess the opposing views are is Star Trek on one side where you have the utopian vision and then you have Mad Max on the other side where, you know, the world's completely fallen apart, maybe not because of AI, but just, you know, we've literally regressed back and 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 to sort of pre-computer days. And then there's all that stuff in the middle. There's tons of different options in the middle. There's, you know, there's Blade Runner. There's, you know, somebody the other day mentioned um, some Ian Banks novels where people actually live quite well with AI and and they have a symbiotic relationship with it. Um, and I'm just curious to know where you sort of fall on that. If you, if you think about the AI future in sort of 50 or a hundred years, what's your kind of sci-fi vision of that? If you had to equate it to something. I'd say sadly not super sci-fi-y, right? Like, you know, from a Justin's perspective, we were going to have flying cars and robots that could dress us and all sorts yeah. of amazing tech right now. So I don't actually think that we're going to see like fundamentally a humongous shift in like the structure of society. Certainly day to day how we operate. I think there will be um, some major changes. We might see more sort of like self checkouty solutions in a lot of places. You know, certainly I know that my colleague who works on labor is already being lobbied a lot on concerns about stuff like that. Right. But I think truly like day to day how we live. I don't personally see a, a major difference. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Kaylee, thank you very much for your time this yeah. afternoon. 
Thank you, David. It was so great that we finally got to do this. And like I yeah, said, if there's a bunch of comments or questions, like we can always follow up. I'm sure. I I did one on mental health a couple of weeks ago and uh, I did the whole interview and everything. And then I told some people about it and then I got absolutely caned because they're like, why didn't you ask this? Why didn't you say this? Why didn't you do that? And I'm like, put it in the comments and then I can go back and say, hey, let's do a follow-up episode to, to answer them. So yeah, if anybody has any comments or any questions. Um, I'm just waiting for like the, the very like techie folks to be like, no, that's not right. I you know. said it this way. That's not what it does. I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. I, right. I worked in data and data analytics for a long time, but I was on the, on the customer side, not on the, I'm not yeah. a data scientist. I'm not a data engineer, right? I just, I worked with the customers to, to try and interpret the results, but not working in how it works. So I don't know either. Right. I Same. Just, I know how I government is to. thinking about regulating how things. Yeah. And I know you have to be careful as well, you know, um, with what you say too. So no problem. Yeah. Kelly, again, thank you very much. It was lovely talking to you and um, hopefully let's not have it be so long next time, but thanks Definitely. for coming on the show and I'll speak to you later. Well, thanks for having me. The Creatives with AI Podcast. The spiritual home of creatives curious about AI and its role in their future.